Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 28. Passage Ryan read for us at the beginning of the service. Uh, it's good to be here with you, Brent said. Wife Margaret is here. The kiddo stayed uh, there with grandparents. Uh, but we're very uh, grateful to, to be with you. And planning on moving to Kenya. Who knows what will happen, you know, with all the COVID-19 stuff. But Lord willing, we're going there in January. And I'll teach at uh, Baptist Seminary and as well help train pastors around the country. And I'll tell you more about that as we go. But let's look at Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. It says, Now <clears throat> excuse me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We study God's word. Let's pray for his help. God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone. You haven't left us in the dark. Father, you've given us word. So Father, as we study it, I pray that your spirit would come and speak through me, speak clearly, Powerfully, Father, I pray that you would use this word to grow us in our faith, to rebuke us where we need to be rebuked, Father, to use this for your glory. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when I mentioned the phrase, the Great Commission, many of you could probably just rattle it off without even thinking. You didn't even have to turn to this passage, right? That's something we grew up hearing. If you grew up in the church, you were exposed to this passage probably very early, BBS or something like that. And, and as Baptists in particular, we're missions people. And so this passage and the other ones, uh, especially that talk about missions, are used time and time again, and rightfully so. Because they're really the cornerstone of God's mission to the nations. Right? As I prepared this sermon, I've reflected on the impact of these verses on my own life and how they took me from small town in Mississippi called Brookhaven uh, to... I was able to spend a summer in India during college. That was very transformative. And to eventually New Orleans with Margaret to plant the church. And now, Lord willing, to Kenya uh, to go train pastors. And I'm sure many of you have had similar situations or experiences where uh, maybe this very passage just weighed heavily on your heart and it, and it compelled you to step out of your comfort zone, to, to step out and maybe to go on an international mission trip or maybe a domestic mission trip, or maybe just to step out and go to your next-door neighbor and share the gospel. So as we reflect on the Great Commission this morning, really I have two goals. First, I want us to reflect on this passage and see what it's telling us, that how our Christian life should look, and as a church, what should your church be committed to, to be dedicated to? Now, don't tune me out. Again, Sometimes, if you're very familiar with the passage, you say, I got it. What more can be said about the Great Commission? But let's just step back a little bit, spend some time soaking in the glorious reality of this passage, and let it just wash over us afresh. 
I, just, I, I want us to kind of experience it, soak in it, see what God is telling us in it. But secondly, I want to share how these verses have impacted my life and my wife's life and led us to work with an organization called Reaching and Teaching International Ministries. So as we unpack this passage, it's a pretty simple outline if you're a note taker. Uh, we're going to look at three marks of a Great Commission church. Three marks of a Great Commission church. One, they submit to the authority of Christ. Two, they make disciples of Christ. And three, they rest in the abiding presence of Christ. Submit to the authority of Christ, make disciples of Christ, rest in the abiding presence of Christ. All right, first, submit to the authority of Christ. Now, when people turn to this passage or think about their, this passage, minds often leap to what the passage calls us to do, and that is important. But in this passage, what we are called to do is actually secondary to what Jesus says about himself, to what Jesus has done. You see, our commissioning as Jesus' uh, messengers, uh, our commissioning is rooted in what he has to say about himself, really at the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage. They serve as kind of bookends here. So let's start at the beginning. In verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He declares that he possesses all authority. Now, remember what the Jewish people were looking for when Jesus came onto the scene. They were expecting a really strong military or political leader to come in and kick out the Romans, to take over, right? Like you would see on some uh, action movie or something like that, right? That's what they were looking for. And in their minds was something like Daniel 7. You don't have to turn there, but Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14 say... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so people were thinking, okay, somebody's going to come in, and they're going to establish this kingdom. And they were thinking earthly, right here, you know, uh, a political kingdom. And Jesus actively fights against this expectation throughout his ministry, right? Because they're like, are you restoring the kingdom right now? Are you doing this? Or are you the Messiah? And they're thinking in their minds, political leader, military leader. And he fights against these expectations. But here, after the resurrection, with his disciples around him, we see him fully embracing and clarifying everything, saying, yes, even though it's been there the whole time, right? It's clear. If you read about the life of Jesus, oh, he possesses all authority. They always say, who is this one? Who is this one that even commands the, the wind and the waves? Who is this one that has power to forgive? Who is this one that has power over demons? It's the king of heaven and earth. But here, before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he encourages his disciples, I possess all authority in heaven and on earth. So the Jews looked for a Messiah, but they looked wrongly. His kingdom looked radically different than their expectation. Glory came through shame. Kingship came through submitting to death. He encouraged them 
This idea of him possessing all authority was to be a comfort. And it's important for us today. You might say, why? Why is the fact that Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, why is this important for us? Well, it should give us confidence in our mission, just as it was meant to give confidence to the disciples. Notice, Matthew includes this little note. I think it's interesting in verse 17, how the disciples reacted. It says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that crazy? He was raised from the dead. They, they saw him on the cross. They, they saw blood flowing from his hands, from his side. They heard about it. Yet, here some of them are going, oh, they're doubting. Jesus gives this word of encouragement, this word of comfort. As he's about to go, and I'm sure they're doubting as well, going, Jesus is leaving. What are we going to do? Jesus says, I possess all authority, heaven and on earth. Why is, that a good, why is that good news? Why is that a big deal? Well, if Jesus possesses all authority, and he does, then there is no power that can stand against the expansion of his kingdom. There is no power greater than his own. The resurrection is a demonstration of that very reality, that not even death, could hold him. Don't you see how that gives us confidence? We go out in a world full of violence, sickness, strife, all of this, hatred. We go out as sheep among wolves, but we still go out, and we can go out boldly because we have a shepherd king who is greater than any adversary or adversity that we might face. Are you fearful? Are you fearful of what, what it might cost you to live as a, as a disciple maker here? Or maybe you have friends or family serving overseas and they're in very dangerous places and you're fearing for them. Others, Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. Rest assured that he is in authority and not one hair on their head, your head, will see harm outside of God allowing it. Because he is powerful. But another reason why it's important that he possesses all authority is that there are false gods, there are kings who are receiving worship and honor and glory that only King Jesus deserves. Brent talked about the men and women around the world who've never even heard of Jesus. I grew up in Mississippi, right? The Bible Belt. Like everybody went to church somewhere, you know? Well, whenever I went to India, the summer of uh, 2007, I guess it was, we were in northern India and we went to village after village and we were meeting people that you say, Do you know Jesus? No? Who is that? They, they were spending their lives instead going to their little local temple with, with man-made statues, and they were bowing down and worshiping these statues, living their life, giving honor and glory to this thing. When Jesus is high and exalted, He deserves the honor and glory. And there are so many people in this world who are giving that honor 
to someone or something else. Maybe it's not a man-made statue. Maybe in, more in the West, it's maybe just materialism. Maybe it's the idolatry of success and the approval of man. But Jesus possesses all authority, therefore he deserves all of our allegiance, our deepest desires, our deepest affection. So we hold the Great Commission near and dear to our hearts because Jesus is the only true king who deserves to have our ultimate allegiance. Brothers and sisters, I'm afraid we've lost sight of this tragedy that others are receiving worship that only Jesus deserves. I'm afraid that we hurt or are moved or stirred in our affections more by other allegiances than over Jesus. And we can ask ourselves, what is it that really moves your heart? If you had to think about it, what is it that really stirs your affections? What is it that really gives you outrage? Without going too far into it, just reflect on this question. Do you get more hurt or more upset when you see a flag being disrespected than you do about Jesus not getting the worship that he deserved? See, if one stirs your heart more than the other, you'll see where your deepest allegiance lies, won't you? Jesus possesses all authority, heaven and on earth. But lastly, Jesus' statement about having all authority also brings a responsibility. If he has all authority, then he also has the authority to dictate how we carry out his mission. You see, churches and missions agencies have all sorts of ideas about how to plant and grow churches. We moved to New Orleans four years ago, and there, we have no shortage of people telling us, this is how you get a crowd. This is how you grow a church. And I'm sure you've dealt with that here in your own church. Some of them are good and biblical, but many of them are terrible and just worldly ideas. But if Jesus is calling us to a mission, he also has the authority to tell us how to go about that mission. So Jesus makes the declaration that he has all authority. What next? What is that second mark of a Great Commission church? You don't just submit to the authority of Christ. But because of that, or through that, you make disciples of Christ. Since Jesus possesses all authority, we make disciples of Jesus. Within these verses here, the main imperative or the main command is make disciples. Churches can get busy doing all sorts of good works. But the fundamental charge to you as a church you as a Christian, to me as a Christian, the fundamental task of our ministry is to make disciples. But how do we make disciples? Well, as I said, the main imperative or main command is to make disciples. But here, in uh, kind of in the Greek, there's three other participles that tell us how to make the disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Let's look at those real quickly. One, go intentionally. The first means of carrying out the Great Commission is by going. That God calls us to go to the nations, right? We don't just sit here. So he saved us. He's, he's forming this church. He's formed this church. But you don't just stay here. You go out. You go out, go out to your community. You go out to your nation. Uh, go out to the nations to make disciples. And when I say nations, I don't just mean like we're going to Kenya and we're going to go 
you know, say we share the gospel, and somebody turns to Christ and go, all right, we're good. Got a, got a disciple in Kenya. Let's move on next to Tanzania. That's not what it... Think more of people groups. And by people groups, I mean uh, segments of, of people or groups of people who have shared customs, maybe languages, uh, religions. So if you even think about Kenya, there are a lot of different people groups within Kenya. And they probably share the same customs. Um, they may have a separate language than the tribe that's a mile over to the west. And they might have a different religion. So they, maybe they're animistic, so they kind of believe in spirit worship and ancestry worship, or maybe they're Muslim, right? So we think about we're going to everybody, all the people groups, uh, and we're making disciples, but, but don't restrict this to international missions. You see, we can look at this and go, all right, well, we're helping people go to the nations, or we're taking a trip to the nations, so we're good. No, this passage has a bearing right here in this very community. We are called to go to all of those around us, and especially those in our own backyards. And this can be more difficult than taking an international mission trip. Why? Well, if you're going overseas for a week or two, you can go share the gospel and go, all right, if they think I'm an idiot, big deal. All right, not a big deal. They won't see me again. It's a whole other deal whenever you go to your next-door neighbor and you share the gospel, call them to faith and repentance, right? That's when things can get awkward because you're going to see them day in or day out. Or you go to your coworker and you say, listen, you're living your life pursuing all of these things. It's, it's folly. You need to turn to Jesus. That's, that's harder, right? But that's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples wherever we're going. And that includes work, that includes school, that includes in our very families. So this is not restricted or limited to international missions, wherever we're going. It's an intentional lifestyle, a cross-bearing lifestyle, where we're going, where you are living as a church and making disciples all places. So you're going intentionally, but secondly, baptizing faithfully. As we go intentionally, we boldly share the gospel and we wait for Christ to gather his people to himself. And you might think it's weird that he talked about baptizing here instead of say, like, hey, go intentionally and preach the gospel. Right? But the thing is that within the New Testament in particular, that baptism and faith and repentance go hand in hand. That really preaching is assumed. Right? Because, uh, yeah, like I said, baptism and faith and repentance go hand in hand. Think in Acts chapter 2. Peter finishes his sermon the day of Pentecost. The Spirit's moving, and the people are like, what do we need to do to be saved, repent, be baptized? Right. So he's, this really shows, baptism shows um, a picture of the gospel. That we are, uh, It shows that we need to die to our old self and we're raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a robust picture of the gospel. And this shows us then the heart of our proclamation. People are sinful and need a new life in Christ. And we are not primarily in the business of giving men and women self-help tips. That's not the fundamental charge of the Christian church. Though it can be helpful to give self-help tips. That's not our fundamental task. Neither should our outreach efforts, whether domestic or international, be exclusively about meeting physical needs. Again, hear me. I said exclusively. 
Meeting physical needs is important. But we are called to care most deeply about people's eternal needs. We're to get past the superficial. We're to get down deep into people's spiritual problems. Right? That they're sinners and they're alienated from God. That means in your everyday conversation with those around you. So I grew up in the, in the South, the Bible Belt, where Southern niceness, right? Where everybody's very friendly and nice. They might not like each other, but they'll smile and go, yeah, hey, doing good. Have a good day. And it just so often stays at the superficial level, right? That's not disciple making. That's not a Great Commission type of lifestyle. Great Commission type of lifestyle is pushing past the uh, superficial in addressing heart issues, addressing sin, right? So we're, we're preaching faithfully, and then as people turn to Christ, we're baptizing faithfully. So going, baptizing, and third, teaching comprehensively. After we baptize, we don't stop there. The last step in disciple-making is to teach believers to obey all that Christ has commanded. This is often neglected when we think about the Great Commission. Oftentimes when things, people think about the Great Commission, in their minds is conversions. It's going, say, in international missions, it's going into a village where people don't know Jesus, preaching, saying, all right, turn to Christ, seeing people turn to Christ, baptizing them, and then kind of out, right? But that's, we're leaving part of it off. Christ calls his disciples and calls us to be about teaching comprehensively, about discipleship. And this is a negative side, this unhealthy focus of on conversion and limiting the Great Commission to conversions. This has caused tremendous problems in missions around the world, right? Because what has happened? We say, we got to go make disciples of the nation. And in that, they only think we need to go make converts. And there's a need for speed to go to all these villages instead of the slow work of deep discipleship. And what has happened then is that false teaching is creeping into the church around the world. This is ultimately why we've joined Reaching and Teaching International Ministries. So currently, I serve on the stateside staff. I partner with churches in the U.S., and we'll go train pastors overseas. Most of my training takes place in, in West Africa. So I'll go to Burkina Faso, go to, go to Liberia, um, places like that, and go train pastors who don't have access to theological education. Right? And the reason this is so important, I'll, I'll, I don't want to skip ahead. Let me give you some statistics real quick about theological education in the world. Just to put it in perspective for you. Approximately 85% of the pastors around the world have had no theological training. Give you a little different number here. Within the United States, there is one theologically trained pastor for every 235 people, roughly. 235 people. You get outside of the United States, there's one theologically trained pastor for every about 450,000 people. About one for half a million. They say, so what, Cody? What's the big deal there? 
Well, think about it. How can a church thrive when the shepherd doesn't know how to protect the flock from wolves? How can a pastor who's called to faithfully teach God's word actually teach it if they've never been taught it? And so whenever you hear theological training, don't think, oh, big seminary education. No, I'm talking about basic discipleship. I was in Liberia last year. We started a training site there. And our very first uh, training module, we do an overview of the Old Testament. And in this room, it's not young pastors for the most part. I mean, it's guys who have been pastoring for, for decades even. Right? We got done preaching or kind of teaching through the Old Testament. Multiple guys came up and said, we've never heard anybody teach through the Old Testament like that. Nobody's ever shown us how the Old Testament like fits with the New Testament. Right? So it's not, it's not like deep. It's not like I was doing a Greek, uh, big Hebrew study. No. Just basic, hey, here's the Old Testament. Here's the storyline. Here's how it points to Jesus. They're like, never heard this. This was brand new things for them. Because there's no basic discipleship. Now, there are places where that happens, but largely, this is a huge need for the global church. And because this is a huge need, because there are many people leading churches who haven't been trained, false teaching is creeping in. Maybe you're familiar with prosperity gospel or health and wealth uh, theology. This idea that if you just have enough faith, God's going to give you a big house. He's going to make you rich. Things like that. Well, the church is growing quickly in South America and Africa in particular. You know what else is growing in particular there? Prosperity gospel. Again, wherever I go in Africa, I can, I can almost guarantee that they have seen the, like, the prosperity preachers on TV, the ones that have big hair and say crazy things. That's probably their idea of Christianity, right? And they're, probably their teaching is going to be impacted by the prosperity gospel because that's all they're hearing. There's a need for deep discipleship. And this story has been repeated. This idea of just hearing, like coming to Christ, nobody truly training them, and then false teachers coming in. That story is repeated time and time again. I was blessed to go to Bible college. I've been blessed to go to seminary. I'm working on my PhD right now. But you know what? You might say, well, Cody, that sounds great, but how, how do I? Like, I, I haven't been to seminary. Again, if you've just been discipled in a local church, you are enjoying riches that so many Christians around the world don't have exposure to. Sunday school, discipleship classes, maybe a small group, whatever that looks like here in your church. One, you should be grateful. But two, we should leverage the theological richness that we have around us and leverage it for the gospel around the world. This is what I do with reaching and teaching. I help teams go over and train pastors. And as well, we have ladies that go over and train women in, in uh, various areas. So in, in India, for example, we have uh, a couple of ladies who went end of last year, because coronavirus has messed up everything, but go and just teaching ladies, this is God's word. This is how you read it. This is how you understand it. Ultimately, the heartbeat, the vision of our organization is 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Or Paul says, 
what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'm going to come back to reaching and teaching in a minute, but let me encourage you, carry out the Great Commission here. Carry out the Great Commission in this community and abroad. In every uh, ministry of the church, you must ask yourself, are we teaching the whole counsel of God? Brothers and sisters, in your homes, are you faithfully reading the Scriptures and instructing your children? This is something that we neglect far too much, far too often. That the, the basic need of discipleship within the home shouldn't be left to Sunday school teachers and pastors. The basic responsibility of discipleship within the home is for parents. It doesn't have to look like anything fancy if you say, oh my goodness, what does that look like? This, you don't know what my home is like. Well, we have three little kids, right? Seven, five, and one and a half. So if you can just imagine, things get crazy at our home as well. So it can look just something simple of sitting down each day and reading a few verses and then praying. All we do in our home is at breakfast, I'll sometimes read a chapter. If the kids are particularly acting crazy, it might be half a chapter. And we'll pray for some church members and we'll pray for a missionary. Just giving them the word, showing them what it looks like to pray. Right? Trying to give them a heart for the nations as well. Something simple. Just work in small routines, small rhythms within, within your house. Teach them all Christ has commanded. So, third mark. This is kind of drawing, starting to land the plane here. Let's rest in the abiding presence of Christ. He closes this passage. says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is a promise. This is a promise that should anchor our souls when the waters of ministry get tough. He promises his disciples and he promises us that he will be with us forever until he returns again to do away finally with sin and the kingdom of this world. He's with us. He's with you. You can go out boldly. You can take heart because Jesus, just because he's going and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, doesn't mean he just left us to wander alone. No, he's still with us through his spirit. He's still with us in the sense that Hebrews 7.25 says he always lives to make intercession for us. He's with us through the church, through his body, the body of Christ. That he has saved you. He's done you a favor by commanding you to be a part of a local church. Because it is through fellowship with a local church that we experience the fellowship of Christ. He is with you. You can rest in his abiding presence. What a great gift we have. What hope we have to faithfully carry out the Great Commission. That Jesus did not leave us alone. Rather, he's always with you. So do you feel inadequate? Do you feel like you're just going to mess things up? Look to Jesus. Ask Him for opportunities. Ask Him for boldness. Ask Him for clarity in, as you explain the gospel to your neighbor. And trust that He is with you always. As we close, let us consider the responsibility that we have, the things we are called to do here in the text. But also, let us consider 
the glorious reality that the sovereign king of the universe has saved you and commissioned you to live as a herald to proclaim the good news to the nations. To proclaim the good news that the king is alive. He doesn't need us, but yet in his grace he has decided to use us. He has given you the opportunity to go teach his word, to go share the gospel, and to see the fruit spring up. Either people coming to to know Christ for the first time, or to allow you the grace to see sanctification. To see people conform to the image of Christ. What a grace. What an opportunity that we get. How can you live this out this week? Maybe it looks like for you, going to that coworker, going to that neighbor, sharing the gospel with them. Maybe it looks like you just taking another church member who's maybe new in the faith, and you just say, you know what, we're going to start meeting once a week or twice a month, and we're just going to read through the Bible together and pray together during our lunch. That's a great commission lifestyle. You don't need big programs and things like that. Right? You don't, don't think, oh, if I'm going to be a great commission Christian, i got to move overseas. No. Simple, often mundane steps and activities that bear eternal fruit. Maybe it's just simply starting the routine of reading with your family and praying every day with them. Or maybe it's just you need to step back and you say, you know what, I actually don't have a heart for the nation. I feel in my heart that I'm cold to the people around me. And you just need to say, Lord, forgive me for my apathy. Give me a heart that, ha- that, that really reflects your love for the nation. And if you're here this morning and you actually you don't know Christ, you've never submitted to Christ, He calls you. He commands you as the sovereign Lord of the universe. Repent of your sin and look to Him. But let me encourage you. If that's you, you can do it gladly. Knowing that there is joy, that there is deeper satisfaction in Christ than you'll ever find in anything else or anyone else. So look to Him. Also, I would ask you to seriously pray about partnering with our family and our work to Kenya. You say, well, what does that look like? I'm not asking you to, to pack up and move to Kenya right now, right? First, we need prayer partners. We need people who are going to pray for us, that the Lord would prepare the way. As you can imagine, moving a family to Africa it can be intimidating. We're not super spiritual people. <laughs> uh, we're not very you know, special people. We need the Lord's grace. We need the Lord's help. And therefore, we need your prayers. So at the end of the service, uh, there are a couple of sign-up sheets up front. See a place for name, email, address, and there are two columns that you can check. One says ministry newsletter. Um, Feel free, if you want to sign up, I send out a a ministry newsletter once a month. It just kind of tells you what we're doing, ways you can be praying for. It's not like a spam thing. I'm going to beg you a lot of different things. Just what we're doing, how can you pray for us? 
If you're interested in, in praying for us, feel free to, to sign up. Okay? So we need prayer. But a second way to um, partner is financially. Everyone who works with reaching and teaching, uh, we have to raise our own support. Let me say this first, though. You are called chiefly to give money to your local church. That is the priority. You are a part of this local church. Being a member of this local church means you're covenanting to give your time, your money, your resources, right? So do that. If you want to give above and beyond that, $30 a month, more, whatever, or just a one-time gift, then there's another column that you can check that says interest in like financial partnership. As well, I'm going to give Ryan a, a link to our ministry newsletter. From there, you could find a link to how to give to our ministry. But we, we are completely dependent upon churches and individuals to financially support the work that so we're going over. And I'm going to teach full-time at a seminary, but in Kenya, as a way to, to make the training affordable, they're dependent upon professors who that they don't have to pay. Uh, and so we're dependent upon our church and other churches to kind of support that. And the Lord's been really gracious so far, but there's still ways to go. So if you're interested in that, sign up. I can tell you more about how to become a financial me- member. But regardless if you sign up or not, I pray that you as a church would be marked and be zealous for the Great Commission. That you would go out boldly sharing the gospel, teaching. I pray that the Lord would allow you to see the fruits of your labor. That this area, this whole community would be changed by the gospel. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your grace. I thank you for your goodness. That you use fallen people uh, like me to proclaim your word. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you'd protect them from the schemes of the evil one. pray that there would be no disunity here in this church. But Father, they would be unified around the gospel. Give them opportunities even today to share the gospel. Give them opportunities for discipleship. And I pray that you would grow this church, not just so they can feel proud or anything like that, so you might get the glory, Father. So that you might... Uh, form more and more disciple makers who are taking the gospel here to the nation. Father, I pray these things in Christ's name.